Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Park Street Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Correa. And I'm your host, Emily Pennington. I'm thrilled to be here today because it's an exciting time in the industry, or at least from my perspective. We are closing out the dog days of summer, and that means business is starting to pick up again. We're seeing prep for O&D, which is the busiest time of the year in this industry. There's more and more industry news coming out, and there's a few upcoming events that I'm looking forward to before we close out the year. Yes, and one of those events that we're really excited for is Bar Convent Berlin coming up in October. We've been working hard communicating with speakers, getting some panels together for entrepreneurs that are coming from all over the globe to learn more. And this year, our panels will cover some key topics like sustainability, entering the U.S. market, global craft spirits trends, and of course, everyone's favorite, the world of mergers and acquisitions. So if you happen to be at this year's event, definitely stop by the Park Street University stage and say hi. Emily and I will both be in attendance. But today we have a great podcast episode for you. So Emily, what can you tell our listeners about this conversation? Yeah, thanks. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the world of impact investing with Andrew Marinoff. He's the founder of Dispact Ventures, an investment fund that makes strategic plays across technology, food, and beverage and retail. He's also the CEO and founder of Chinola Passion Fruit Liqueur. That sounds great. And if I'm not mistaken, Andrew Marinoff, that last name definitely holds some weight in the distribution world. Is that correct? It does indeed. Andrew has been a longtime client of Park Street, but this was the first time I'd actually gotten to sit down and hear his story and talk to him at length. And what I thought was great about him is that he certainly forged his own path in the alcohol industry. You know, he started out working in the hospitality and on trade side of things, then he started his own tech business before he transitioned over to creating Dispact and Chinola. So today in this episode, he and I cover his approach to impact investing and the common threads between the brands that he is invested in, as well as the way brands can orient themselves when they are seeking investment opportunities, and how his experience with Dispact translated to setting a brand strategy for Chinola. I'm sure people are excited to hear more. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this conversation with Andrew Marinoff. Well, hello, Andrew. Welcome to the Park Street Insider Podcast. Hey, Emily. How's it going? I appreciate you having me on today and excited to uh, get the conversation going. Yeah. How are you today? Where are we finding you in the world? So right now I am back in New York, a little uh, world tour behind me, a few uh, ones ahead of me, but excited to be here chatting with you from my home base, which is a nice change of pace. As your listeners know, it's always an evolving territory. Nice. Okay. Well, so with the show, we typically like to open up with a bit about your background. You are, of course, part of a family with a significant legacy (laughs) in the food and beverage space that I imagine people will recognize. But I want to hear a little bit about the path you took to arrive where you're at. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm always excited to share, you know, growing up in the food and beverage family with a long legacy, you know, four generations on one side, five on another, it leaves really big shoes to fill, but ones that are exciting to fill. I always say to people, we work in one of the best industries in the world. You know, a lot of people join it, very few people leave it. And I felt that on from a very young age, visiting a lot of high-end to low-end restaurants, everything in between, I fell in love with cooking from a very young age. And I was in my first kitchen at six. I was teaching the culinary class by nine to the adults and really moved on and worked my way through a lot of the kitchens, back of house, front of house, different disciplines, and really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm sorry, I have to cut in here. You were teaching adult classes at nine? I wanted to do it four. They said no. At <laughs> six, I joined. I was in the kids program for three years. And after three years, they moved me to the adult class. And the first day, I kind of took the, the realm of it. And by then, I was teaching cooking classes with my instructor, Uh, nine years old to adults. And it was the most enjoyable time in my life. That's amazing. So you were like those kids on the like reality kids TV cooking show like that was you basically. Funny enough, I I almost joined the Emerald show at 10. uh, When he was looking to do that first cooking show, 
And eventually I realized I get a little antsy in the kitchen and the idea of being filmed for six hours wasn't in my forte at the time, but no, it was a place where you were most likely to find me. Oh my gosh. Okay. So now that I know that we're talking to a prodigy here, <laughs> please continue on. <laughs> I didn't mean to derail your story. No, not, not at all. And you know, like I said, there's a lot of people that think they want to be part of hospitality, but you have to really love what you do. It is not only a yes sir, no sir, but it's about having the most utmost respect for the clientele. And you have to enjoy that. It is a lot of hours, a lot of days out of the week, a lot of missed holidays. And I think the most important place about building your foundation in this industry is thoroughly enjoying it. Because if you don't enjoy it, it's almost impossible to, uh, to manipulate and, and to succeed in. Yeah. So, you know, f following that STEM career, I, I had moved throughout different restaurants, different culinary, etc. I, I was the kid that was the weekend planning commission to the events coordinator in middle school. Did my first little you know, several day stodge, 11 Madison Park, after I told my dad I wanted to be a chef and dropped me off there at seven o'clock in the morning, came back at 8 p.m. And I said, Pops, I'm coming back tomorrow. It was a failed mission on his part and a success on my part because I really got to know the ins and outs of a kitchen. And it, it started and accelerated my career in hospitality. I eventually moved on and worked a ton of internships. Steve Hansen at 15, helping open up Dos Caminos over to the MKTGs of the world in the marketing sector for Tiffany Vo, Diageo, activating events at 18. And then by the time I got to college, a lot of people had this term of divine right. And it happens when you have a long legacy. And it was tricky because I came into college with 6,000 work hours of experience. And my main saying was no one with divine right works that many hours before they get to school. And so I knew I wanted to study food and beverage hospitality. I knew I loved international business. I had now had a discipline in front of house, back of house, from dishwasher to line chef to bar back to bartender and realized that you know, a change of pace would really highlight my career and teach me a new discipline. And that's when I joined the, the tech sector and started my first venture, Techquity. As you'll see from Dispact, I like plays on names. So equity in tech companies and failed miserably several times, you know, really did not do well until about a third or fourth company started to hit. And throughout my four and a half years in college, you know, my double major, we incubated, built, failed, succeeded, sold over 32 tech businesses which gave me validation of understanding the whole landscape of what M&A was, but at the same time, staying true to my roots in hospitality. That's incredible. So I'm trying to think of this chronologically, right? So TechWity was during the college years. Did it exceed that? And then you came back to food and beverage? Or was it just kind of during the college years? No, see, it, it never really left. Because if you want to understand hospitality, wine, spirits, and whatnot, I'm going to use the word disciplines a lot. Because you can be the almighty factor of, I know everything. You don't want to know everything. You want to be skilled in a few assets that allow you to manage a business that has parts of it and components of it that might know something really well. Without understanding Excel, it's hard to build models. But without understanding data analytics and what that data actually means, it's hard to succeed in any fashion. So I never left tech behind. In fact, in my venture portfolio, I have several tech companies across the hospitality sector I find it very important to have that understanding because you're a restaurant, you have customers come in, who are those customers, what time do they dine, and what do they eat? It's actually a really successful standpoint to how to build a beverage brand uh, around a consumer and at what time to do so. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, what I was trying to dial into here is you have these different phases and maybe look into what you took away from each of them, right? I assume the value was a little different from each buckets that you spent some time in. Absolutely. Great way to the question. I think the better answer to that is it's one thing to know an industry that you're in. It's one thing to learn a whole new industry. And then can you take that new industry you've learned and dial it back into the industry you're trying to move forward in? So hospitality, I was very comfortable in. I was always comfy in the kitchen, in the restaurant, reading the data reports, reservations. I was not comfortable building a tech company. But because I learned the ins and outs of that, I learned a whole new sector of knowledge that normally only your back of house and a spirits company would know and how to transition that and understand that people are talking to you. Because there's a lot of information that is given to you as a supplier, as a distributor, how to resource that and pivot to something that you think is successful to your brand was my best learning possible. Because if you understand something out of your own industry, you're probably going to get your own industry even better than that. Yeah. 
Okay, that makes sense. It's interesting because on this podcast, I often ask people, you know, how did you know you were ready to start your own business? But it seems like you just inherently have always had that drive to be entrepreneurial. Is that accurate? Yeah, my, my eighth birthday, I drew a whole blueprint of my backyard to show how my birthday <laughs> should land, where the inflatable bouncy house should be, the Tom Canyon machine. I've always liked designing and planning, but no, I can't say that inherently I knew because I failed so much along the way. My best asset was that I failed, that I owned it, and I never wanted to fail in that specific way again. But I could fail a hundred different ways. It, it made me more comfortable understanding different sectors and disciplines. But better than that, understanding the house that I built and the team that landed within that house to know when there was something going wrong, how there's a possibility of fixing it. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm curious if you have any long-term partnerships or relationships in this business that transitioned with you through these different phases. Some people have, you know, a partner that they work with throughout the years. And I'm thinking of off the top of my head, Elwyn Gladstone and Mark Teasdale from Proximo, right? Like they have built several different things together. Not everyone has to have one of those, but I was curious if you do. No, it's a great question. And I think it stems off a more simple answer that we'll get to your question. It's, I have three main principles when building a room. The first one is never be the smartest person in the room. I like to find myself with really brilliant people. I never think that I'm the smartest. I think it's a terrible idea to be around people that don't want to learn. So my second point is everyone in the room has to not be set in their ways. They've got to always want to learn and improve themselves because anyone that thought they had a playbook two years ago prior to COVID that playbook has been ripped up, broken down, and changed. And you know, the last one is I don't fill myself around with people that just say yes to me. If there's 10 people in a room and nine of them say yes to me, nine people are not needed. So when you ask who I set myself next to and who I really have long-term partnerships, they're my top advisors, my top friends, all building things, whether they're competitive or agreeing with the things I do. And I've built an amazing room. Because of those three principles, my room tells me no. They plays devil's advocate. And Martizo was the definition of devil's advocate. He taught me that early on. You don't, you know, you want someone to challenge you. You want someone to tell you, hey, I agree with you, I agree with you, but we could do this differently. And now my room is full of people that A, are willing to learn, B, that will disagree with you, and C, when you throw it out there, they're always going to be more intelligent on certain disciplines than you are. And I feel like that's a strong room. Yeah. And so just for the audience listening, I'm going to connect a thread here because I can't remember if you said it. You have worked with and for Proxima, right? Yeah. So I guess going back, and I guess we'll, we'll probably get into it, but I've spent the last seven and a half years over at Proxima Spirits, the Jose Cuervo owned Substary. And Mark Teasdale was the first person to interview me. I was looking at other big suppliers across the space, one doing data analytics, one doing the B2B for a very high-end French champagne company. You guys can all do your analysis. And then, you know, Mark tapped me and said, do you want to help with development? Do you want to help with M&A? Do you want to go make a splash on a smaller scale that could end up being a very prevalent scale? And I started on those projects. And seven years ago, I started on something called the Manhattan project of New York City and fast forward just opened up Manhattan's first distillery in 100 years called Great Jones Distilling Co. And so I've, I've been through the journey of a greenfield project and I've been through the journey of projects that already had light and how do you get to the end of the tunnel? Okay, so I am going to go back to segue from you were talking about building rooms, right? And I think that's a perfect jump off point for talking about dispact ventures. If you could explain it, what the aim and goal is for dispact. Yeah, absolutely. So dispact ventures, another plan words, disrupting industry with impact investing. You'll see a lot of that on, on my plate. The main goal was I had been through very massive corporations. I knew how they would do M&A, how they would do brand development. They were not wrong, but they were well capitalized. And so the whole idea of disruption versus impact investing, and there are many definitions of how it's done. My main goal was how do you find something different? How do you find something new that hasn't been done before? Disruptive. How do we put something into a bottle that might have been done with a flavoring agent, artificial ingredient, you know, the whole gambit? and change up the landscape. And for me, impact investing is where it gets really important. If you look at future trends right now, current trends and trends the last few years, social media is your best tool, but could be your worst enemy for people that do this the wrong way. 
I think the most important thing possible is that our generation, generations before us, and future generations look for traceability, transparency, so that their food has come from the right person, the person growing that food has been paid the right wages, and that is really the impact. Impact can be defined as what do you do, social responsibility, how do you donate back to the community. For me, the two biggest things are education and workforce. How do I educate local communities and how do I include them on the workforce where you can grow in that standpoint? And finally, the encompassing thing is pay them fair wages to do so. Yeah. And I just want to add to that there that our listeners might recognize some of your brands in the Dispact portfolio are Coconut Cartel, Long Drink, Empirical Spirits. You mentioned Great Jones and Matchbook. If you know off the top of your head how many companies you have invested in total, but I just wanted to throw a few examples out there. Yeah. The fun part about Dispact is we now operate with about 18 companies in the portfolio. Okay. The technology companies, you can list the number high. You know, we're in 60 plus countries around the world, but our spirit companies is where it gets really fun. And if you look at the balance of them, Coconut Cartel, founded by Danny and Mike Zig, it was the first coconut rum, but cut with coconut water. It was doing the right thing by their community, you know, a female founder right there with the right mission, the right statement, and again, the right disruption of saying, hey, there's no more artificial flavoring. This is a real product set by real standards, grown by real people. When you fast forward and you look at Empirical Spirits, I went to Copenhagen, I fell in love. I'm a big foodie, there's Tokyo, there's Copenhagen. Copenhagen is at the top of my radar. And met two ex-alumni of Noma. They were making this in their garage. It was a device I'd never seen before in my entire life. It blew my mind. You're using negative vacuum purging, minor heat distillation. They confused me so much that I fell in love with them right off the bat. And they said, here's the vision for this company. Here's what we're going to do with it. We are going to make, remember one of the first things they gave me was Dorito gin. It sounds disgusting. It is amazing. <laughs> they infused Doritos into a gin bottle. And I kid you not, it tasted like a high-end Dorito gin. It sounds disgusting. It was fantastic. They were making their own koji. My gosh. They were using their own farmers, making their own koji, which is the main part of the distillate for the product they wanted to produce. But it wasn't using mainstream ingredients. It was supporting local farmers with the right practices that hit on the right messaging. And it blew my mind. So we had to go and support them and back them. When you look at Matchbook Distilling Co., my sister and I, have a very friendly, competitive nature set. And I think competitive in the best way possible. We are our favorite support systems. We really have each other's backs at all times. We both started Greg Jones and Matchbook at the same time. She finished three years before me. But what she did really importantly to me was supported local New York farmers. They would normally sell their crops for a few pennies on the dollar. And she got their crops in, turned into a spirit. And it was selling for over a dollar uh, over the market value of what their spirit or product should be sold for. So if you think about it at that front, she will take 6,000 pineapples, bury them underground after smoking them for three days, distill them, and make a spirit that tastes like a smoky pineapple mezcal without the jurisdiction, and, and really turn the needle. So it's no longer about mass-scale brands that hit a consumer at the right price point. No, this is about true, genuine brands limited allocation, 3,000 bottles, 5,000 bottles that know how to win and infiltrate a market. And that was what Dispact was born off of. Oh, very interesting. So is Dispact more of a hands-off venture fund or are you sort of involved in providing guidance along the way? It's funny because I'm sure the founders would answer differently. I really do like to get granular with every company. I like to do it from 100,000 feet up, but I really like to get my hands dirty. I think one of the best things about the people I work with are they understand that if there's something that needs to be done, I'm not delegating it. I'm going into market to do it. I really do like to help advise. And I love looking at companies that might have 70% of what they need. They're missing 30% because I can fill it around the, around the block. If it's financing, accounting, et cetera, it's one thing. But if it's really sales strategy, growth models, that is my bread and butter. That's what I really like to get my hands on. I like to say that I am in the back of office, but... As my founders will tell you, I am in the front of office. My cell phone is open 24-7. My fiance does not like the fact that on a Sunday you can call me at 8 p.m. and I will answer the phone. <laughs> but at the same time, 
we all reap the benefits of our industry, which is an industry where you go out to enjoy one of our products, you're doing a fun atmosphere. You're not going to a restaurant to have a mediocre time. You're going there for a celebration, no matter what it is, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And I think that's what really helps infiltrate. And again, it comes with long hours and a lot of people saying, you live the best life. You get to do this, this, and this. In, until you've been in one of our shoes, you have no idea. Hence, why I go back to my first point of, if you don't enjoy this industry, it will eat you alive. Yeah, you do have to be a little bit crazy to found an alcohol brand, maybe maybe even be an entrepreneur in general. But we have certain brands that make sense. The technology side, seven rooms. You know, we're in sixty countries, five hundred million plus reservations. I didn't invest because I like the hospitality outcome of it. I loved it because I got the data of knowing what people drink at what time of the day, what their allergies are, what their likes are. Now, if there's one company to really watch out for, it's called Flaviar right now, and they send four samples of liquor to your home, you rate it, they take it back. They are data collectors in the best way possible because they can give you market analysis and market trends that you can go and say, my tequila should be like this. My mezcal should be less smoky, more smoky. Here's the demographic it hits. I think the innovation in our industry is mind-boggling. The people that are doing it, they're not your normal big suppliers. They're the brands that sit within the smaller distributors, the smaller importers, but that's where they grow. You know, and not to give the shout out, the unendorsed shout out to Park Street, but it's my favorite platform for seeding brands anywhere. You know, everyone expects to go to a distributor and I have their whole Salesforce's attention. Here's what I'm gonna do, it's gonna be great. No, that's not how the industry works. You need to do the heavy lifting yourself. And Harry at Park Street has been amazing for us, kind of leveraging the different areas. Every one of my brands that wants to get valued in the U.S., I put through the system because it's a system that works. It can tell you will this succeed and in what market, at what scale, at what speed. And so every brand that we do, we incubate through this portfolio, and it has led to some amazing success. Other than that, learning experiences on we're not ready for this market, we're not ready to be here. Then we dial back, retool, and readjust. And I think the biggest downfall to brands are ones that are not willing to pivot. They set a 12-month goal, and they don't know how to adapt to it. Hence why I say I love having worked every part of the industry because if you buy a program that builds your P&L, your profit and loss statement, and there's a misadjustment you need to readjust, and you don't understand the numbers, you're never going to know how to fix it. And I think Park Street gave us a great insight and deal on how to fix things and know where they went wrong. So I think you are a really great person to discuss industry disruption with. So I want to take a few minutes and ask your insight on this. Obviously, you said primarily what you look for in brands for Dispact is the ability to disrupt. And I think I see two distinct periods, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, right? I think for a very long time, the industry was resistant to both technology and disruption. Do you agree with that assessment or do you see it a different way? I think that change in our industry that has been around for so long that some would say is possibly archaic in certain factors or none, um, everyone always wants to make a change. There's no sector on the world that hasn't had some shift or change. The difference is ours is dealt with in a three-tier system where, where change can be slow. I would say people have come in here and I'd say DTC, direct-to-consumer, has been the probably the biggest shift along with social media. Hands down, that's where the biggest investment is going to go around the system. But I feel like I might be a little more old school. I do not believe without liquid to lips, boots on the ground, and at-home consumption to on-premise consumption, I think without it, you're, you're lost. I can show you a video of something that looks the same as the next thing and get some celebrity behind it. But I really do think that building brands slowly in our system is key. And you can shift the needle, but do so in a way that is tangible versus intangible. And by that I mean do it in a way that actually reaches consumers on a one-on-one -on -one basis or at least be in the same room basis and do it online, which I've seen so far been almost an inorganic type growth model that doesn't succeed for longevity. What are some of the advancements and the disruptions that you see, whether in your portfolio or not, that you're excited about? I know you kind of mentioned Flaviar, but are there are there more? I think it comes in, in in several fronts. I think we have now the easiest capabilities of reaching the most amount of people without them leaving their homes. I think this was not prevalent five years ago, three years ago, gray area. 
based on the ability to not only ship to consumers, but also to deliver to them within 24 hours, 12 hours, three days, is probably the biggest revolution our industry has seen in 100 years. It has never been done before, and I think a lot of new consumers don't realize that that was not available five years ago. I think to get products into people's hands quicker than ever has never been easier, and what that looks like is also difficult. When you talk about social media and then you talk about a delivery platform, the cross-correlation of it is still a little bit of gray area, and it changes on a regular basis. So understanding how to pivot from there is really important. And the second piece that people don't realize is education. Education is probably the most important tool you can use because there's nothing better about one of your consumers walking, seeing them bragging about your product on a bar. Oh, I know what that product is. I learned this from social media or going to your home. I went to a house a few weeks back and I didn't know the person. And all of a sudden they were pouring chinola into a sparkling wine. They're making what we call the chismosa. means people that gossip in Spanish. She knew the drink name, she knew the meaning behind it, knew the meaning behind Chinola, which means passion fruit in Dominican Republic, knew the reason she was pouring it. And as the co-founder of this brand, I was confused. How do you know all this? And we had a bartender that did it, a retail component that reinforced it. And so I think what's amazing is on Drizzly, you can reinforce your message very quickly. But if you add two more tools to it and you hear it more than three times, people live by that story. And that's the advantage that people have now that they never had five, 10 years ago. You go to a store, someone would tell you the store. You might watch a commercial about some big Irish whiskey. You never had the tools to do this. And people are in a lucky place right now. The only disfortune is saturation, but saturation comes in no matter, anytime there's competition, saturation will exist. Sorry for the long-winded answer to that question. No, no, that was great. But I want to transition to maybe asking questions for our audience that tends to be small emerging brand owners and ask you some questions as an investor. Specific to Dispact, are you always looking for new investments? And if so, how do you find them? Do you search them out or do you accept pitches? I think it comes in two folds. I love to network. I love to have my ear to the ground. There is a key network ability to go out and go source funding. And then there's another network ability of meeting other brands that correlate to your mission. And I, you know, I do it in two fronts. A, the deal flow that you get is really key to our industry. Making sure you're connected with the right other funds, the right other firms, right other brands. Things like Brooklyn Bar Convent, Aspen Food and Wine, Tales of the Cocktail, Expo. I can name 100 conventions that are key to go to. Right now, how we do it is first deal source comes through people that reach out to us through mutual connections. There are really only a few spirit funds out there, so we all correlate and connect with each other. The second part is the cold call. I never mind the cold call if it's a sector that we're looking into investing. We allocate the fund three to six months in advance. We know the sectors we want to go into. The mainstream items, and this is not saying not to do it, this is saying our feel on it is, I know I can't compete in tequila. Straight tequila, I've worked for the tequila company. They know what they're doing. Whiskey, very difficult. Certain rums, no, but innovative brands that are a new RTD, a new brand that's never been done before, things that we really look for, and we like to vet out. My favorite part about it is I love talking to founders because if nothing else is a trade of information, trade of information and a contact for life is really important to us. And so we really love following the journey. We have a threshold for certain amounts we'll invest in versus certain revenue standpoints. And then understand the saturation of the market, the data behind it, and taking it from there. Oh, that's interesting. Small aside, I did not expect to discuss this, but you mentioned how important attending trade shows is. And I did not expect to hear that. Can we just for a second touch on the value of trade shows? Because I think everyone, you know, ourselves included, is evaluating how to participate in trade shows going forward. You know, do we keep the same volume that we did? pre-pandemic or are we doing everything online and we don't need them anymore? So what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think it's really important. I think that our industry and hospitality will never go away as being a face-to-face -face market. I can't say 20 years from now, you'll have the yotels of the world that you check in anonymously, but hospitality means a person-to-person -person connection. I don't see it ever changing. During COVID, the hardest thing for me was to connect via Zoom calls, via Teams meetings, etc. I was always an in-person person. I think that there's no better way to get to consumer as a one-by-one -one interaction. And I really do see the resurface of people wanting to get that back. 
the GSMs that were changed, so the, the sales meetings that were changed via online are great. We just had our first GSM in Texas in person, and we got the crowd roaring. We did our samplings, and people really love that interaction. So I don't see it going away. I think they're just choosing which ones are right to be at and which ones aren't. And at a broader level, choosing what spear competitions to participate in and which ones are not worth it. I think that it's really important for consumers to get the face to the brand, the knowledge behind the brand. I don't really see that going away, nor would I want it to, because we have a better ROI and a better interaction at a trade show than I would off doing an online campaign. Yeah, I agree. Okay. That's interesting. Going back to your DizPack portfolio, my next question is, do you consider it a curation of sorts or do you evaluate it just based on the company's values and how much you believe in them? And what I mean by that is, would you avoid investing in two similar products? That's a great question. And it's in several fronts. Because when you look at DizPack portfolios at a whole, unless you look at 100,000 feet up, you would never know the correlation between the brands. And I say that because, for instance, seven rooms, like I said, restaurant data, understanding the consumer, the trends, where they go at what time is great. As an owner, I don't get that information, but I at least get to read some of the data versus Pinata. And Pinata is what saved me from agency fees. You know, prior to Pinata, you'd go to an agency, say, I want to book 150 demos, and they'd email 150 people for each demo. And by the time someone got back to you, the demo was filled. And so the smartest thing we could do is how do we get real-time data, sell-through, analytics on that, pictures, trainings. And so each company has a specific hold in my overall portfolio. But better than that is you will find a lot of drinks between Coconut Cartel and Shinola, Empirical and Shinola. You'll see Long Drink team with other one of our partners, Matchbook making products that we can't actually make ourselves, like a spicy bitters for a spicy mezcal margarita. And so I like to have synergy between all them. The RTD space is probably the only cross-correlation that we had because we went in at such a booming stage of that space. But no, no, all of our brands play together. We're all very friendly. And honestly, I think there's room. In the cordial liqueur category, there is room to grow that. should not always be the forefront, but we learned how to create the world's first shelf-stable fresh fruit liqueur with real citrus backing to it. So could we do it again? Probably Having a one skew brand is great, but are there partners of ours that we use in that space? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So a, a lot of, you know, resource and insight sharing. Sure. So you've talked about some of the characteristics that the brands have in common, but I'm interested in hearing what are some of the values that you hold or the company holds that you want to further through Dispact? I think a lot of it comes down to the founders themselves and the story and culture that they've built. And I have a few amazing examples of how that's been done. What people need to be very careful about is cultural appropriation, especially in our day and age right now. Mm -hmm. Not only cultural appropriation, but how to deal with founders that have a genuine message across the brand they're trying to portray. And amazing examples is Coconut Cartel wasn't just a Guatemalan rum. It was female founded by Danny Zig and her brother Mike, who had a coconut business, but going back to El Salvador and Guatemala, taking those coconuts and infusing them into rum and paying the fair wages to those purveyors. My sister, you know, as much as the friendly competition comes, she's an amazing <laughs> distiller. She makes some of the best spirits I've ever had in my entire life and comes with that female-driven brand. And, you know, you don't just have to hit on that aspect. I think it's very important. But if you look at how a company run by females versus males are, it's a very different portrayal of how things should be done and almost in a better way. I think the last one would be Zuzu. When Emma Greta came in and the structure they had built behind it, it was simply amazing. It's that this is the right thing to do and here's the demographic we want to hit. And if we portray out of the demographic, great. But here's the core competency. All in all, the key part is don't be everything for everyone. Find the niche, find that group that you want to target. And I promise once you target that group, you're going to succeed. That's great. Very well said. And so the last question here on Dispact is, do you have any tips for brand owners out there who are thinking about an exit plan, whether it's, you know, in the next couple of years or 10 or 20 years down the road or working on negotiating investing now? A few things have got people to lose sight of what the main objective is. If you look at the Casamigos of the world and you chase a valuation or you chase something bigger than it actually is, you're going to find yourselves in trouble. And I've already dove into the Casamigos deal a few times. What I would say is 
The day that you look to build a company for exit is the day you've already failed. In fact, if I go into a room, I ask you what your game plan is in the next five years, and you say, I want to sell this company, I'd probably leave that room right off the bat. Really? The day that you build a company for acquisition, it means that you're going towards a target that is to back engineer the value of that target. And I really do not believe in that. What I believe in is dividend checks. What you should tell me the day one you're in the room is saying, hey, in three years from now, you're going to get a check for a small size. It will not cover your investment, but you'll get paid out because we maintain profitability. I think there are certain brands that need to chase top line revenue, but most brands do not do that. They need to find their path for organic growth because companies will not buy you if there is no route to eventually profitability. Secondly, if you're chasing goals that don't make sense for your brand. So if you look at a brand saying, I need to sell 100,000 cases to be sold for $300 million, you're doing it the wrong way. What you should be looking at and saying is, I need to reach 50,000 cases, profitability, scalability, and reinvestment into that brand. And I think it's one thing that industry shifts on quite a bit of saying, hey, I want this. I don't care about profitability. I want growth. Right now, I think in the next three to five years, we'll be in a position and power of saying, hey, this brand organically grew from 5,000 to 15,000 to 30,000 to 50,000, where most brands are raising 10 million bucks to get to 50,000 the next day, but then there's no growth of the supplier that acquires you. And if you can't leave a piece for acquisition that allows them immediate growth, you're going to fall short on that target. Oh, excellent. I hope everybody got out their pens. If not, rewind a little bit. Listen to that again, write some of that advice down. That was definitely well said. I think that it makes sense to transition into talking about Janola, your brand. Can you give us kind of like an overview to help us understand the scope of Chinola? I know it was founded in 2012, but let's talk markets, case count if you're comfortable with that, state, footprint, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So Chinola was definitely one of the first ventures I took on. It's probably one of the backbones of Dispack Ventures. So it's one that I believe that there's emotion and there's intelligence. And when you're emotional, you're less intelligent. When you're intelligent, you have less emotion. And Chinola is one that I vary on the edges of that because it was one of the first products I had ever found to start with Dispact. The idea behind it was I had dealt with a lot of really sugar-forward, artificial-flavored cordials and never could find the citrus component working on the back of bar, front of bar, bartender, and mixologist. I always was given a sugary cordial with a flavor to it, and then I had to add simple syrup, and then I had to add a citrus. And what I realized is, can you put something into a bottle that's citrus forward with real fruit in it, higher viscosity, to knock out two or three ingredients all at once? And one of my founders of it was in the Dominican Republic. He was searching for coconut water and met this Austrian who was 11th or 12th generation Austrian liqueur maker was making these liqueurs in his apartment in a blender. And, really? Yeah. And our buddy tried it and fell with it right off the bat. My other partner was over at Diageo at the time, uh, found the bottle, and brought it to our partners over the Broken Shaker at the time. They were ranked the top 15 bars in the world. They normally disliked everything, very hard to get through. They tasted it and fell in love with it. About six months later, after they said to run with it, a bottle was brought to me. I was out in Long Island. My co-founder flew from Chicago out there just to see me. I tried it, and immediately I was like, guys, let's, let's get this into a bottle. This is going to change the landscape of what that cordial outdated market looks like, and we should run with it. Two and a half, three years later, 2,200 plus test batches, modifying fruits from a vine standpoint, not genetically, but actually grafting plants together, from Venezuela, Hawaii, Australia, you name it, come with our own genetics of fruit. You want to talk about failure? I'll tell you about failure. It used to separate by 80%. Labels fell off, caps didn't open, brown quickly. Mm. You name it, we went through that process. And the one thing we never want to change is adding things into it that were not natural to the product. We fast forward three years. We eventually were able to take off into markets in Florida and New York. And we were about 95% on premise. COVID hit us and it wiped away, as I said, 95% of our business in two weeks. And as most of my founders were, you know, in tears and shambles, all I had to do was try to pivot every company to say, here's how we're going to change the game plan. And I think unless you know how to change a game plan, you were probably in trouble at the time. That year, we picked up over 250 retail accounts, which that was at a time when no one was taking in new products in retail. Wow. 
became a well-known brand, got greenlit by Total Wine, greenlit by a ton of indie brands. And by the following year, we had grown 480% to 12,000 nine-liter cases, up from 2,700 from a pinnacle year. As of this year, we're in 27 states, about 13 countries globally. We have a fun team uh, staged around the country. We've created this brand from uh, unshelf-stable to shelf-stable, separated to non-separated. Our caps open 99.9% of the time. It's still one of those things during COVID that has made things difficult. Labels stay on, and it's been an amazing learning experience. I think the best part about it is we were able to keep local farming jobs in the Dominican Republic, keep that brand very soul and whole to them, and now get the Dominican Republic support to keep it scaling this brand to, uh, to the next level. Oh, that's very cool. Okay, I have a couple of follow-up questions. How big is your team right now? Yeah, so right now we're probably about eight or nine full-time with ambassadors spread across the U.S. U.S. is the core focus, but we're in you know, our second biggest international market is Australia and New Zealand. Nice. We have a few markets in Europe, Dominican Republic being what we're going to make the, the biggest market. We're spread out, but the team really consists of boots on the ground. The trick here was how do we get into market, visit as many accounts as possible, and hire the right people that have the right motivation behind it. Stemming off that to advice other brands, we've always stuck with one SKU. It's one product, one SKU, and the biggest mistake that some of my brands have made is they want to be a little bit of everything all over the place. It is the toughest thing to dial back from and to know that if you can't do it with three to four flavors, you're not going to do it with eight flavors. Ten is not the magic trick. It's understanding where those flavors are. Always be a little less emotionally attached to something and more intelligent to pull it back. And understand dialing back is not always the worst thing possible. And with Chinolo, it's, it's hard. We have an amazing advisory team that teaches us focus, focus, focus. Our cocktail program is 26 cocktails deep, but we really only push three of them as the core focus of this brand. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that strategy. In the U.S., do you focus on you know primary markets, Miami, New York, San Francisco, or do you have sort of a mix with secondary markets as well? End of the day, everyone wants to be a sexy type brand where you're in New York, Miami, L.A., and excuse me saying that terminology, but... People are chasing events and visibility instead of real market penetration. I think that is a wrong thing people do. One of my favorite markets we're in is in Georgia with Savannah Distribution. And they are one of our top markets. It was kind of a boys club when we went down there. The first account I went to was called Trailer Park Bar in a trailer. And the guy says, stay in the car. You're never going to get in here. And I said, I promise you, 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to sell a Chismosa to one of these guys. And I did. And we started exporting the market. I think the biggest issue is all the big suppliers, they focus on the top five, 10 markets. So do I like second, third tier markets? And I say tier based on volume. Yes, I love them. I love going to win Georgia, Omaha, Nebraska. If you just show faces of founder there, people really resonate with that. If you go to Tennessee, again, a bigger market if you're in Nashville, but why not go to the outer suburbs? If you want to go win Chicago, go win the outer suburbs of Chicago Win six of them where everyone commutes into, and by the time you're done, you'll have Chicago on, on lock. If you want to go to New York, Manhattan's great, but everyone lives in Manhattan. Go in upstate New York. You want to go to Florida? Go sell in Key West. It is a sleeper place. Naples, sleeper place. You go win that. That's a successful brand to me. And so I think that you need to have home roots in some of these places, but do not go try to lock in Florida, New York, California, Illinois, and expect to be overnight success. Instead, win the outer places that no one pays attention to that you can win easily. That to me is a winning model. I agree. That is also one of the strategies we often promote on Park Street University, and especially because you're you're going to get better velocity in those markets, right? You might sell into a top account in New York, but are they going to keep selling through bottles? Not as likely as they are in Omaha, Nebraska, probably. No, I, like I said, there's a few fun ones. Cincinnati, Savannah, Georgia, Omaha, Nebraska. Because honestly, you can validate yourself in the top markets. The issue people lose sight of is if you don't validate yourself in all types of markets, then no one sees the scalability of your brand. But if you go scale there quickly, there's a peanut butter whiskey brand I'm sure everyone knows on this podcast <laughs> that in four markets built a brand worth nine figures. So I think it's doable. I think it's the more reasonable way to go. So find one of those three markets I mentioned, choose one, dive in, but do not forget the rest of the U.S. because the taste profiles are very different. That brings up an interesting question. Do you have any 
brands that you hold as the standard. They did things that you would want to do with Shinola. And maybe they're like a completely different category, but they did it right. And, you know, you take inspiration from that. I, I have two right off the bat that I think were brilliant. And I think this first story, and I apologize to William Grant for showing out their playbook, but Hendrick's Gin, to me, would be the most successful brand launch possible. Go into California. Do not ask for 100 accounts. What they did is they asked for 30. The 30 right menu placements in the first 90 days. And of course, the distributor said, what are you talking about? We could do more. And they said, no, no, no. 30 accounts, 90 days, menu placements only. That's all we want. And this is just the on-premise. And they said, okay, we'll do it. 60 days in, 30 menu placements. What do you want now? Well, the 90 days leading after this, another 30, but don't lose more than two of the original 30. Okay, we'll do it. Next 90 days, did the same thing. By the time they were done, people thought, oh, they have 120 counts. No, they had about 380 menu placements designated per that year in one part of California because they chose their market segment wisely. They did not ask for the stars. They didn't shoot for them. They said, I'm going to get the right 30 accounts here, the right next 30 accounts. So when I go to the distributor with Chinola, I'm not saying get me 1,000 accounts. What are your top 20 accounts that we're going to choose trajectory into? where consumers get educated by bartenders, they then go to the liquor store asking for it, and really just hitting certain areas perfectly. The second one would be Screwball Whiskey. I mean, you're talking about a brand that is worth a lot of money in the nine-figure range by building it in four states because they chose where they wanted to win. They didn't want to be ever all at once, and they went deep versus wide, and I couldn't stress that enough. You can look at the Tito's example, and you talk about the overnight success versus the 11 generations, whatever it is. Tito's was not built overnight. Tito's 10, 12 years ago, people didn't know what it was. He stuck true and then built intelligently. Here's one skew, one flavor, one profile. And I think it all leads to what my best advisors tell me is focus, focus, focus. I could not stress it enough. Do not scale past your means. Do not overextend because at the end of the day, people ask how I do so much at once. I feel a little overextension of time, but I like seven days a week, 24-7. I don't mind it. But you can only do so good for so many people all at once. And so what you do is you find your core competency, your core discipline, and say, hey, I might not be able to help you across the board, but here's what I can help you do. For me, it's a goal planning for the following year. For me, it's hiring the right personnel. I'm not a good accountant. I'm not a good HR person, not a good legal person. You should outsource that. But here's the core discipline, how I can help. I think not losing sight of that is going to be really key for brand success. Those are actually fantastic examples. As Screwball has long been on my, you know, admiration list. So if you're listening, I would love to get them on the podcast too, so we can find out even more. <laughs> I would love to hear the story behind Screwball because people behind that marketing geniuses. I know. Yeah, they did a fantastic job. Going back to talking about Chinola, what is the next big focus for you or milestone, if you will? I think that there are a few milestones, but the biggest ones would be we have now discovered who we were. It only took seven years, and sometimes it does take that long. We've discovered our core competency. We've discovered how to educate consumers, how to win trade, and we have our territory set up. We didn't randomly launch 27 states. We did it strategically to understand who our national chain accounts were, who our independent accounts were, how to cover the right demographics, the right markets. The biggest next milestone for me would be how to go deeper in those markets, how to continue to grow on the brand, how to understand the idea that we didn't create the world's first, you know, Chinola or passion fruit liqueur. We created the world's first ability to make fresh fruit liqueur. And there's a big difference there. So if you talk about acquisition, I'm not bringing passion fruit liqueur to the table. I'm bringing a mythology on how to make fresh fruit liqueur to the table. And that's the big bread and butter piece to us. So I think the next year's goal is to expand on our efforts that we've been doing, hire in the right places, dial in our education, and really just teach the trade about it. You know, it's no longer about going wider. It's now how do we penetrate markets in areas that people have maybe forgotten or never known about. And I see that as a, the big milestone, supporting our local Dominican farmers, building the culture down there, really investing back into our home territory. To me, that's the biggest milestone. If I get people proud of us down there, that is a massive victory. So we're expanding globally. We're dialing it back now. We have our 12 countries. We're going to go very heavy into a few of them, understand that we can win a European country, win an Asian country, win Australia, 
we don't need to expand past that. That will be the core focus and then really winning the U.S. It's the most important market when it comes to valuation of a brand. And we plan to hone in on that. What would be your dream outcome for Chinola? Is it the Tito's of, I don't even want to say passion fruit liqueur, right? Because you were talking about the methodology is almost as important as the flavor. Or is it to have, you know, a whole portfolio? Probably the toughest question you could ask, but one that I probably have a pretty good answer to is that, and I have nothing against Tito's. Tito Beverage, his actual last name, is one of the most brilliant people in our industry. And his scalability is incredible. With the way that we grow our fruit and the way that we support local farmers, we probably could never scale to that size. But what I really do want to hit on is the idea that consumers now want to know where their food comes from. They want to know what goes in their body and how it was made. And I think where we're going to give a few bigger cordial suppliers and owners a run for their money is watch out. We know how to make fresh fruit liqueur. We could be the first sustainable fresh fruit liqueur line in the world. And at scale, that's great. But even without scale is knocking flavors off menus that are synthetic and artificial and putting us on the map and, uh, you know, knowing a bunch of the players in the space and knowing that we'll never hit their price point. We don't like to discount our brand. I don't want to. That's not the right way to build the type of brand we have. It's really just saying, hey, high end accounts that you want to know what you're drinking or you're health conscious. We might be your your trade off to get there to a drink that's feasible for you. Uh, beneficial to our farmers and all around win for everyone. The very last question is for anyone listening to this episode, where can they find out more about Dispact and Chinola if they want to? Yeah, from Chinola, we love when people follow our Instagram. It is very industry focused. Put a lot of updates there through our social channels. Better than that, you know, come to a bar in your local area and you might find one of us out there. And if not, please feel free to reach out to us via Instagram and always happy to uh, do a mention. And then for Dispack personally, and I couldn't be more upfront about this, I love chatting with founders. I know the landscape. I know how the distribution works, the suppliers work. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, etc. And if nothing else, for a phone call to give you advice on what my predecessors have taught me and what the new venture funds are looking for. If nothing else, I'm always happy to lend a hand and give you a little bit of their playbook. Can't give it all, but I can give you some points of entry. Perfect. Well, Andrew, it was an absolute delight to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your knowledge. Emily, it was such a pleasure to chat with you. Like I said, I found Park Street near and dear to me over the years, helping build so many of my portfolio brands. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you further on all fronts. Excellent. All right. Well, take care. Awesome, Emily. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. It's Emily again. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying the Park Street Insider podcast, don't forget to rate us and leave a good review. If you're interested in getting involved in Park Street University, email us at psu at parkstreet.com. Thanks a lot.